Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is, this is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Um, today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. This is the discovery of the risen Lord. And uh, we know that we have the same issue here that we have with the stories of the Passion, that there is a variety of remembrances of how things happened. But I think that one thing that we have to keep in mind with this, especially with the Easter story especially, is the fact of the surprise and the shocking nature of it led to a great deal of confusion and a great deal of joy but bewilderment and that when people are highly emotionally um, engaged in, in something, you very often get a tremendous amount of discrepancy about, about the events that surround that, that enthusiasm and that joy. So that when we realize that of the four Gospels, there's a variety of different ways, there are a variety of different ways to whom, to whom the Lord first appeared. There's a variety of different interpretations of how the, the disciples discovered this. There's a variety of interpretations of what happened at the tomb and so forth. So that those those things do not become the central issue and the central focus. We can say, well, you know, the Lord appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Um, it appears that in, in John's Gospel that may well be true. Um, at the other, on the other hand, there is a consensus in all four Gospels that the first official witness of the resurrection is Peter. And that becomes very clear in this Gospel as when John's Gospel as well. Because John actually says very deliberately that he stepped back from the tomb and allowed Peter to go in first, that he might be the first witness to the empty tomb, to the resurrection. There's also another thing about the, the uh, Easter stories. None of them deal with the, uh, with the mechanics of the resurrection. How did it happen? Well, no one knows because no one really was there and to be an eyewitness to the event. And so the whole premise of the resurrection becomes visually based on the fact of the empty tomb. Now, also, um, there is in some of the Gospels, angels there, just and especially I think in Luke, and, uh, and to announce the Lord was risen just as the angel had announced his, his conception and uh, and the angels had announced his birth. So now the angels come, return into the gospel stories, and they announce his resurrection. And just as the, um, and just as the conception of the Lord happens to be true, and just because the birth of the Lord happened to be true, um, we, we have very little reason to doubt the testimony of the angels on the, on the, uh, on the risen Christ. So, <clears throat> With this, with this in mind, you know, that, that we're, what we're not doing, once again, what we're not doing is looking into a, a stenographic um, reproduction in words of the, uh, of the events that were experienced by the women at the tomb and, and by the apostles themselves. 
So the gospel begins, it was very early on the first day of the week and still dark when Mary of Magdala came to the tomb. She saw that the stone had been moved away from the tomb and came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, she said, and we don't know where they have put him. This is, this is really, in, in, in this gospel, this is a corrective to extremes that Mary Magdalene was certainly the one to witness the empty tomb. But it was, it doesn't say here, as it does with when John and Peter arrived, they saw and they believed. She presumes that the body has been stolen. And, uh, and so she runs to tell Simon Peter and the others that uh, somebody has stolen the body of the Lord. So Peter set out with the other disciple to go to the tomb to see exactly what was going on. And they ran together, but the other disciple, running faster than Peter, reached the tomb first. He bent down and saw the linen claws lying on the ground, but he did not go in. Simon Peter, who was following, now came up and went right into the tomb and saw the linen claws on the ground and also the cloth that had been over his head. This was not with the linen claws, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and he believed. Till this moment, they had failed to understand the teaching of Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. So that's the gospel that we're dealing with today. We've already seen that it's very significant that Mary Magdalene does not, become a, does not believe in the resurrection at first glance. She thinks that the body has been stolen. It is Peter and John, and here John credits even himself with saying, and he believed. But uh, also at that moment, Peter also had seen it, and Peter also believed. So that the first, the first faith witness to the resurrection becomes Peter. He's the first one in the tomb. When, 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 we, go, when we go through all of this, <clears throat> and then we, we find that uh, an interesting thing at the very end of the gospel, till this moment they had failed to understand the teaching of Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. The presumption is, is that in the Old Testament, which is the scripture in the New Testament, that in the Old Testament there was the presumption of the resurrection of the Messiah. Um, that you have to glean very carefully from, from the pages of, of the Old Testament. But it is a presumption on the part of the, of the contemporary Christians to the resurrection of the Lord and to the aftermath, the founding of the church, and so forth, that it is, um, it is a presumption that everything about the Messiah was told in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And I think that this is important, and I think this is significant. This is what, and I think we mentioned this before, this is what mysticism was for the early church fathers. It was discovering the underlying truth of that which had been revealed, but which had not yet been realized because the Christ had not yet appeared. So that it all remained enshrouded in symbol and in vague illusions. And, uh, and yet, as soon as Jesus comes and, he, and Jesus lives his life, is crucified and rises from the dead, the truth of the old covenant pops out. And we began to see we have but to go back to the, to the, to the suffering servant of, of God in, uh, in Isaiah's prophecies. We have, but once again, also 
to find in Baruch and some of the others this allusion. We find, for instance, even in Isaiah, again, 714, the virgin birth. So what we began to find then is we began to find that there was all sorts of allusions. And it's interesting because on the road to Emmaus, <clears throat> Jesus um, explains this, the scriptures that had told talk, that had told the apostles are the disciples on the road to Emmaus that he had explained through using the Old Testament everything that pertained to him. Um, this is a touchy thing, of course, because uh, Benedict the Sixteenth made uh, a, a, a statement, a, a, a talk about this, where he said, you know, that uh, that. Jesus is the basically the ultimate interpretation of the Old Testament. He was immediately accused of anti-Semitism, um, which is kind of silly, um, because Jesus was doing the very same thing on the road to Emmaus, and one would hardly be able to call Jesus an anti-Semite. So, <clears throat> if this is if if this is is our faith, we have every right um, to profess it as such. And the evidence is very strong that the that the kind of the mystery figure throughout the Old Testament really was a prefiguration of the Christ. So now, when this says that also the disciples reached the tomb, they had failed to understand the teaching of Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Well, we know that they failed to understand the mystery and the depths of what Jesus was doing. We're very well aware of that. Um, because no matter what he tells them, they seem to have a certain indifference to the whole thing. Um, even even at, at the Last Supper, they're, they're jockeying for position in, in a certain sense. Um, when he's telling them, you know, from the depths of his soul that he, he has, he's going to die. And, uh, and once again, they're arguing about who's the greatest and chit-chatting about whatever they wanted to talk about on the road. So they themselves were not prepared for what they discovered. It came as a total shock and a total surprise. I suppose that the disciples, knowing that Jesus had said that he would rise from the dead, I suspect that that in the back of their minds is what helped them interpret the event that they saw. Um, nevertheless, the tomb was empty, and there was no indication that somebody had snatched the body. And so it was the it was the uh, affirming reality that led them to believe and finally understand what it meant to rise from the dead. Now, I know I had a, a conversation not so long ago with uh, a, a non-Catholic Christian who seemed quite enthralled with the idea, well, maybe it wasn't a resurrection, maybe it was a resuscitation. Well, I'm not sure that's such an interesting idea. Um, because if you're resuscitated from the dead, um, that's still pretty miraculous. And, uh, and they said, made the same claim, well, maybe that was true with Lazarus also. But, uh, but the three days is significant, both in the days Lazarus was in the tomb for four days, Jesus for three. And it's significant because the rabbis used to hold that the, the soul of the dead hovered over the body for three days, and then on the fourth day it left, and the body was thoroughly and completely dead. Um, that was certainly true in the case of Lazarus, and I suppose there could be argumentations, too, that, that this is part of the reason for the three days in the tomb, 
in, in the Christian tradition. The other part of the possibility might be is that it, it certainly was the three days and, uh, and that it is on Easter Sunday that Jesus arises and, and, and appears to the apostles, appears to Peter and the apostles. So what we're dealing with here is questions of not so much of, in, of historical inquiry, but we're looking at documents of faith Documents where those who had been with the Lord, those who had shared his life with him here on earth, those which had traveled with him, those who had betrayed him, those who had come back to him, um, those who, who discovered the empty tomb and so forth, they're sharing their faith with us through the scriptures in a very, very dynamic sort of way. And if we stop along the way, really, to dilly-dally and to pick away at the mechanics of a story, when that was never the intention of repeating what happened, we'll miss the point of the whole thing, the wonder of the whole thing, and the glory of the whole thing. I think it's important for us to share the bewilderment and share this, the, the awe of the disciples and of all those who had witnessed that, that the Lord was... Uh, that, that the Lord had truly risen from the dead. And remember, for instance, even, and in, in, I, I like to think of the story of the road to Emmaus, of the disciples, once Jesus had disappeared from their sight, went running back to Jerusalem, however many miles that was, in, in order to report what they had seen and experienced, only to hear that he has already appeared to Peter in the Twelve. So that... Uh, <clears throat> So that there is just so much, so much uh, amazement, surprise, bewilderment, joy, all of those kinds of things going on in all of these stories. Because finally, finally, um, in, in like with, with the fathers in the mystical tradition, that the secret of the Old Testament was the coming of Jesus. And that when we go back and read it backwards, um, we, we, we see that quite clearly here too that the mystery the, the 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 mystical dimension of the presence of Christ in the world in his public ministry and his gathering of the disciples and so forth is equally that now that he has risen from the dead now they understand what he has done now they understand who he was now they understand all of the things that he said to them that they were either were in, they were unable to comprehend are, are um, even if they in some way knew what he was saying, to realize it, to believe it, to interiorize it, to understand it. So that whatever the mechanical arguments might be on the part of Christians or non-Christians alike, the fact of the matter is that this is a faith document. And it is telling us very clearly that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's telling us that very clearly on the testimony of the apostles. First of all, Peter, and then John, the beloved disciple. So, so we, we can't... Um, I remember, too, in, in the early years of the priesthood, a gathering of priests were there, and one of the priests was, was very adamant that there was no empty tomb, that this was a spiritual resurrection of some kind. Um, well... That's not true, um, because that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says they went in and he wasn't there. That's the empty tomb. And I wonder sometimes, too, in some of these arguments, um, how, how legitimate it is to, uh, to kind of make up stuff as we go along that 
correspond with our more contemporary sensitivities of the faith. You know, we, we have we have this this statistic in front of us that that something like sixty percent of Catholics don't believe in the real presence. Well, first of all, um, I wonder who these Catholics are. You know, the country is filled with ex-Catholics who still call themselves Catholic, but they have no use for the faith, do not believe and do not participate. Um, I'm sure that they don't believe in the real presence of the Lord. I'm not so sure that the people in the pews on Sunday do not believe in the real presence of the Lord. So I think that we have to be very careful with these kind of polls because what we're talking about is a group of people who didn't believe in the first place, and that's why they're ex-Catholics. And um, and so to poll them as to whether or not they believe in the real presence or not, or the res bodily resurrection of Jesus or not, is really kind of irrelevant and uh, simply is kind of fodder for journalism. So basically then, what we are dealing with is the phenomenon of what something Paul tells us, our whole faith is of without meaning if this is not true. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then everything we believe is foolishness. And all we have to do is to cease to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and the faith disappears. Um, so that this is critical and this is crucial. And that's why Easter is, for instance, such an important feast day. Because it is, it is the dividing line between belief and unbelief. That it is the dividing line between those who are disciples of the Lord and those who have rejected him. It is in this event, then, that the ministry of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, is defined. And it is defined as, as that, as divine, by the fact of the resurrection. If Jesus was still in the tomb, and if the women had come and anointed him and so forth, then, then there, there is no, um, then our faith is, is, is foolish. Um, because then what's different than any other um, kind of ethical proposition or ethical system of any kind? But this is more than that. Many times, someone who's sliding away from the faith um, will do their very best to turn the, the whole idea of believing in Jesus Christ into a massive pro social work program. And we find that with uh, much of the social justice warriors, that uh, that's the only dimensionality of Christianity which they adhere to, um, which means basically that they have rejected the resurrection and they have rejected Christianity. If that's all there is, then, uh, then so be it then it's of little interest to anyone. But if we are living in a world where our God took on human flesh and not human personhood, but human personality and, uh, and performed many miracles, progressively so up, into the raise, up to the raising of the dead, and then was himself submitted to a kangaroo court led by, by Herod and, and Pilate and, and the chief priests. The more, the more innocent of the three, it seems like the more benevolent of the three, probably was Pontius Pilate because he at least proclaimed more than once that the man was not guilty. And the others didn't care whether he was or not. And, uh, and, 
and and then and then he is he willingly goes to this death. He's tortured and he's crucified, and uh, he dies. He dies on the on the cross, and um, and then he raises from the dead. That's our faith. And if our faith is not integral in all of those parts, then we cannot believe. And when, in fact, not in the fullness of the kerygma, not in the fullness of the message of the Gospels, not in the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so this is also then a continuation of Jesus being somehow the source of all revelation, because he does that throughout his public life. He does it all the time. He does it after his death on the road to Emmaus. He does it in the Abrap and his appearance to the apostles. Um, in the upper room and to the and to the the shores of Lake Galilee and 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 all of that um, that that this is the world in which we live and the world in which we live which simply becomes um, pragmatic uh, we, we can't we can't accept that as being the totality of anything and uh, and and like I said, in the more difficult times, people try to reduce the whole thing simply to a moral system, an ethical system of some kind. Erasmus in the 16th century tried very hard. He wrote a philosophy of Jesus, trying to get away from these, from this uh, amazement of what faith really is all about. Something that's something that's more manageable for the human mind and the and the human psyche and the human ego. Um, but, but it's a failure to do that. We are not just another ethical system. We are not just another moral system. We are witnesses to one of the greatest events, to the greatest event in human history, to God emerging himself in the human race and then raising up, being raised up to, to his source, his origin, to, to the Father, and pulling us with him as he goes. Um, that's what, what we do. We are, and in our connectivity to the Lord during this process of being joined with Him in His, in His return to the to the Father, in a very dramatic way, is we we sustain that we are enabled to participate through baptism, and we sustain that through Eucharist and then reconciliation, especially and the other sacraments, of course, as well. But those are the three that come together that pull us deeper into the heart of Christ and therefore to guarantee or lock in the assurance as best as we can that because we are in Christ in the church, we share the predestination of both, which is we can have great confidence in eternal life if in fact we live the best we can according to the Christianity of the Gospels. So, so this is what's going on in, in, in this gospel. Mary Magdalene saw that the stone had been moved. She ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have put him. That's not a statement of faith, that's a statement of fact. Um, then Peter and John set out running for the tomb. John sees it first and lets Peter go in first. And so Peter becomes, even in this particular gospel, 
where Jesus appears first to Mary Magdalene, or that where the empty tomb appears to be first discovered by Mary Magdalene, that Peter still retains that position of the primordial witness of the resurrection and therefore the primate of the church and the primate of the Christian community. The one, it's even in the road to Emmaus, he ran back, but he heard that they had, Jesus had already appeared to Peter and the other 12. Peter keeps emerging from all of this, and, and I think it's, it's too bad when we get into modern cultural issues here and say, oh no, you know, well, Mary Magdalene was the first to witness the risen Christ. Well, she was the first, maybe, maybe to see the empty tomb in another place. She might be the first to see him, and she thought he was the gardener. Um, but basically, the witness of faith belongs to Peter. The primary witness of faith belongs to Peter. And the Gospels make that very, very clear. So that <clears throat> in relying on the testimony of Simon Peter, who is the rock upon which the gates of hell cannot prevail, that, uh, that we are introduced into this great mystery within our own lives. For this creates within ourselves also a capacity for resurrection and a capacity for salvation. And while we have that capacity through the events of Jesus Christ, those capacities can be realized by the grace that comes to us in the practice of our faith. So that without the practice of the faith, Easter means very little to people. For it is there that we engage the person who has risen from the dead. And it is there that we come as Peter and John to believe that the Lord has truly risen from the dead. How, we have no idea. All we know is that he did, the tomb was empty, and he appeared later on to the disciples. So he was alive and yet had died. And that becomes whatever, however we want to interpret it, the fundamental basic proclamation of the scriptures. And that in that basic fundamental proclamation of this Easter gospel, we can come with confidence and with trust to, uh, to bring about in some way, shape, or form a deepening of the faith of humanity and a deepening also of our love for the Lord and our willingness to follow where he leads. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. <laughs>